The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. September 24th, 2021, and there are 386 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have a chock-a-block show for you this afternoon. It is filled with interesting stories from around the region. Trains, 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 the federal election, all the carp are dead. It's Really, basically, the apocalypse is coming, but at least I will be well served by rail transport. But first, we should mention that in order to continue supporting citizen journalism, we really appreciate everyone who has gone to patreon.com slash Report. Patreon.com slash Report. Yes, patreon.com slash Report. The best source for citizen journalism support. We could not do this without you. It is essential and we really thank everyone who has already signed up and, and donated over the years that we have been doing this. With the federal election behind us, the municipal election is most likely the next fun we get to cover in the Leg and Boot Media Network. And so it's going to be a fun time. Sign up for Patreon. You'll get into the Slack. You'll see all the news first. You'll get to have all the exciting conversations with the other kinds of people who listen to these podcasts who are probably exactly like you. You mentioned the federal election. What happened? Nothing. Is it nothing? <laughs> like there were regional shifts. Most notably, the conservatives burned 14% of their vote in Alberta just to get a bit of votes in Eastern Canada. And there were a few seats that changed hands here in Metro Van, but it all washed out. For our purposes, the most notable change is that Coquitlam Councillor uh, Benita Zarillo was elected for the NDP in Port Moody, Coquitlam, so we'll have a by-election there. Yeah, like I mentioned, the municipal elections are next October, 386 days away, just over a year. We should do something on October 15th of this year to commemorate the one-year yeah. countdown. But the Local Elections Act, as far as I understand, it's if there's a seat vacated before December 31st of the year before a municipal election, they have to do a by-election. And so this is kind of like back in 2018 when Jeff Meggs jumped to the provincial scene, I think it was, to work for the, the new premier. And Vancouver had to have a by-election, and that's what Hector Bremner ran in. It. It's going to be like that, but much lower stakes because it's Coquitlam where people seem pretty happy with Mayor Richard Stewart. Also notable is that Talib Nur Mohammed was elected in Vancouver Granville, uh, defeating a NDP challenger and winning the seat back for the Liberals from independent Jody Wilson-Raybould, who had decided not to run in this election. So Nur Mohammed is interesting from the local politics perspective because he was one of the names floated and considering taking the Vision nomination in 2018. Uh, I think he pulled out for health reasons in the end. Yes. But he'd been around local politics for a while, and then his big controversy of how many homes has he flipped is very right up our alley, I think. Yeah, and the answer is apparently dozens. Flipped homes as many times as Justin Trudeau has done blackface, as in he can't remember. Oof. Oh, oof. oof. 
also oof coyotes yeah building off our last episode where we had a good discussion i thought about how the province was going to come in and kill 20 30 40 all the coyotes guess how many they ended up trapping and euthanizing well i mean i know the answer but is it four yeah it's <laughs> it was wild watching these stories so oof. the province announces we've gotten four and it's like well people were so up in arms that you're gonna like mass murder the coyotes of stanley park and then you only find four that you've deemed problematic animals victory peace in our time peace in our time it's almost a letdown it is interesting among this is the fact that they have been quotes lethally removed <laughs> from the park that those quote marks were in the global news story i pulled this from <laughs> which means they're a direct quote from the province <laughs> i love it so this is basically going to test the question as to whether or not the problem coyotes were a subset of the overall population in Stanley Park or whether all the coyotes were broken. And to be fair, we don't actually, as far as I know, have a good count of how many coyotes there are in the park. And I think that's part of the problem is they just went, well, there's some, there might be a couple, there might be dozens and dozens. It seems like they're frequent attacks. So I think they were estimating it was on the high end but maybe they were just four super aggressive ones that are now no more. Yeah, and if that's true, then we should be seeing a, a balance restored to the park and people being able to take their children out at midnight to the park. Well, one thing that's upsetting that balance are people who have now been caught directly feeding the coyotes. So the BC Conservation Service put out a press release via Facebook video that got picked up where they announced that two Metro Vancouver residents had been arrested and their vehicle seized for feeding coyotes. The investigation is ongoing, so we have no further details than that. This is really stupid. Don't feed the coyotes. The this way it was described, it sounds like these people drove there specifically to feed coyotes, but maybe it was a little less, I don't know, premeditated than that. Like, this is the reason that the call had to happen in the first place, is that people were being irresponsible in their, you know, interactions with wildlife. These are wild animals and they are not to be fed. Really, don't feed any wild animals anywhere. It's not good for them. Thankfully, this has all meant the park has been able to be fully reopened as of Tuesday of this week. So you can go, as you said, enjoy your picnics with your toddlers after midnight. <laughs> in Stanley Park once again. We've had some good weather. Like today's a gorgeous day. Yeah, it is. I'll take my toddler to Stanley Park tonight. <laughs> I will not. So in other news. Of being lethally removed. Speaking of being lethally removed, Vision Vancouver is in the headlines again. They have announced. A, re a real string of stories this week. Yeah, they've announced candidate recruitment for the upcoming municipal election because... I don't know. They apparently still think they're, they're a force. Yeah, they put out a candidate, a call for candidates on their website. And then Francis Beulah tweeted out some of the names of people who were considering running for their mayoral nomination. So these include the city's first Indigenous Relations Manager, Ginger Gosnell Myers, entrepreneur Mo Dollywall, and Community Relations Specialist, Leslie Bolt. Those names might be familiar to you. I'm sure we've talked at least about Leslie Bolt at some point on this podcast at some and point. And Gosnell Myers is pretty highly respected for the work she did in City Hall and has been a pretty prominent person speaking out about reconciliation and 
is a fascinating name for a potential mayor. Yeah. However, probably won't become mayor if they run with vision. So that is basically a foregone conclusion so far, given the fact that vision is effectively a bit of a spent force. Now, I am more than willing to be proven wrong on this count, but I haven't seen much indication that vision is at all capturing hearts and minds in a way that would return it to power or its former glories. Yeah, I've seen them running a few like online webinars and workshops. Andrea Reimer's been involved or connected to a few of those, but I don't know if she's just doing it kind of as a like, here's something political that's largely aligned with her ideology for fun. Yeah. I, you know, she deserves to have a little bit of fun every once in a while. And if if teaching a dying political party, how to maybe not die is, is her way of getting her kicks and more power to her. However, one organization that will not be supporting the vision Vancouver slate is the Vancouver district labor council has chosen not to endorse vision candidates in the upcoming election. Yeah. They came out really early with this statement. I think when I was looking back, it was a good chunk into 2018 before we were really trying to see where the VDLC was going to pare down the candidate nominations to. This time they're a full year out ahead and just saying, you know what, Vision's not going to be on our pick. We'll go with the other progressives and find a majority slate through them. The Vision, they didn't really give a full reason, but it's pretty clear that I think Vision didn't do well enough in 2018 to justify being included. And I suspect there's probably a lot of hurt feelings from how Vision handled those negotiations as we covered at the time. Yeah. Team Kennedy, which is the, the new Kennedy Stewart vehicle and the Greens are also probably going to be endorsed. Now, I wonder why the Greens are even being considered for the Vancouver District Labor Council's endorsement because they have had a voting record that is not particularly progressive, pro-development or pro-anything. It, it, it's one of those poison chalices, right? The Greens are probably the only brand in Vancouver politics that can do well. Like anyone who watches closely gets frustrated. It's just a generic good feeling around the Green Party that they could potentially win a majority slate on their own. And so if you're threatening to run against them, you're having to fight that. And if you can like get them to agree to only run three or four, then you can at least marginalize them maybe. Yeah. Or introduce a wildcard element to council. That means that nothing ever gets done. One of the two, I wonder which will happen. The one city and cope are also expected to be part of the VDLC slate. This leaves out the single Vancouver vision elected representative, Alan Wong on school board in kind of a tough spot. It will be interesting to see what he does in coming days or whether he even decides to run again. Yeah, I do feel bad for him. Like he got elected. He was the only vision name elected in the city. I've never heard anyone criticize, you know, or be like, no one dislikes Alan Wong as far as I know. Mm-hmm. He seems like a competent school trustee and he's kind of getting thrown under the bus because he just happens to wear the wrong jersey. Maybe he switches to one city, maybe he switches to Team Kennedy, something like that and can survive. Or maybe v- VDLC, no, VDLC wouldn't give up on the school board because there are a lot of unions at play on yeah. public school. 
So uh, while Alan Wong's time may be numbered, one that is going to be sticking around are patios. So the temporary emergency patio program, that bane of Michael Weeb's life, was introduced in June 2020 to respond to social distancing and other indoor dining restrictions. This was a very popular program and saw almost 700 patios approved throughout the city. Including at Michael Weeb's restaurants. Yes, although it, it doesn't actually seem like the Michael Weeb restaurant near my house actually has a patio up and open on it. So the entire fucking thing was for nothing, which I find so incredibly aggravating that I want to tear my fucking hair out. Lots of restaurants, as you mentioned, did uh, 516 involved using up some public gland, 388 on city curbsides and 128 are on sidewalks. So Sarah Kirby Young moved a motion entitled making pop-up patios a part of every summer in Vancouver. Uh, I don't know why they have to be just a summer program. I think those things stuck around pretty well throughout the winter, especially since I remember freezing my ass off during that period when we were not allowed inside ever. Uh, that was a a charming time of the pandemic, but it's expected to have some pushback from disability rights advocates who have commented that the increased number of patios that reduce the number of parking spaces reduces their access to shops and businesses uh, and restaurants, which is a, a fair point that should be considered. However, when, one thing that I take a little bit of issue with is the idea that this was privatizing public land. When they say privatizing public land, they, they mean taking land that was for public usage idea, uh, like especially car usage and, and transforming that into areas that were controlled by private businesses. I don't really view car parking as being particularly public land. Like it is public land that is uh, like exclusively set aside by, for individual private use, uh, at least with businesses, there is an opportunity to like go and use the land when, you know, someone's SUV isn't sitting there. I think you highlighted kind of the two major concerns with this, right? The, the accessibility questions, not just around the parking, but because you have these patios, sometimes on sidewalks, 128 were on sidewalks, that reduces the ability for wheelchairs, people who need more space on sidewalks to use it. So making sure there are still accommodations that people can traverse the city. We want people walking, rolling, and getting around using active transportation, right? So we need to make sure we're cognizant of that and not impeding people's ability to get past the patios as much as we also want the patios the replacing parking with patios, you know, I share your lack of sympathy for cars, even though I have a nice new electric car and it is very fun to drive. I don't particularly <laughs> like driving into the city and parking on the street because it's a pain to do. And I'd rather just go find a parkade and pay what it costs to park that thing there. That said, it is a subsidy to business, right? It does give business a benefit without necessarily asking them anything. So during the pandemic, it made sense because we were asking businesses to take a huge hit to protect the public health. And so the temporary patio permit as a pretty much a free grant of an additional floor space was fine. Longer term, I think the city does need to make sure it's recouping 
some costs from there, right? We are giving some businesses a little bit more space. So do we tax them for it? How do we, you know, make sure that even just the fact that those parking spaces that are displaced, the city would have been making some money off of just that the city is not giving a straight handout, even though there is some broader benefit, I agree, to having these patios. Yeah, I I think that's a fair-minded way of approaching it. Like I, I perhaps unsurprisingly am a little less concerned with giving handouts to businesses than than you are, but especially when it comes at the the cost of, of private automobiles. But I, I think that is a reasonable thing to to be concerned about. Fortunately, the the motion does appear to have passed, and it will be part of Vancouver's streetscape going forward. And I have to say that, like personally, I find it much nicer to walk around the city when people are out using the patios than when everyone is cooped up inside from just the lack of patio space generally. I think that's something that doesn't get recognized. There's even like a public safety element to that, right? Yeah. The idea that, you know, we the historical women's movement of like take back the night and take back the streets of just getting more people out. And this does that. Not for everyone. Not everyone can afford to sit on a patio and have restaurant drinks and whatnot, which get quite expensive. But at least with more people out, it does tend to be safer. Yes, absolutely. And just nicer. Yeah. You know what would also be nice? Speedy building permit approval. Never going to happen. No. But we, can, but we can throw more money at the problem. We absolutely can. A full $15 million worth of funding across the province is being shoved down the drain. Or wait, sorry. I used to, used to improve municipal building permitting processes. The fund is going to be administered by the Union of BC Municipalities on behalf of the province and UBCM announced the successful recipients earlier this month, which included nine municipalities in the GVRD region. That's not a term that exists in Metro Vancouver region. (laughs) Yeah. Vancouver, Surrey, Port Moody, North Vancouver City, Maple Ridge, Langley Township, Delta, Coquitlam, and Burnaby. What's interesting here as I look across these numbers is basically they're all getting four hundred or five hundred thousand dollars, except Maple Ridge is just getting one hundred and forty five thousand. Like the fact that Vancouver, Surrey, Langley, Delta, and Burnaby are all getting five hundred thousand dollars equivalently. Coquitlam's getting four sixty five. City of North Van's getting uh, four seventy. I don't feel like all of these cities have equal problems. Um, no problems when it comes to development permits. I'm not saying Vancouver needs. 10 million of this 15 million to fix its problems, but it wouldn't hurt. It sure couldn't. (laughs) Like even just hiring that many more planners, bureaucrats and planners to just review things and clear a backlog. Yeah. So what this is actually going to be doing, at least in Vancouver, uh, Surrey and Coquitlam, they're going to be using their funding towards making a new digital development application platform to simplify the process for both city uh, applicants and city staff. Which is lovely because like there are hilarious pictures of a bunch of architectural drawings all laid out in a line outside the city planning office. Just is anyone, is anyone talking about what this is going to do to the printing business in the town, in the city? Cause these print, like you need a specialized printer to print out those large architectural drawings. And I imagine many are dedicated to like, that's their sole business. Yes. And I have to say that probably they might be consigned to the ash heap of history. Uh, 
just like our city's venerable blacksmiths. It's a good step. I'll be interested to see how this, you know, we we talked about the development of the digital application. This seems like something that we're going to need to come back in 12 or 18 months and FOI a bunch of stuff if we remember to be like, so how did that money get spent? Did it, did it make a difference? Yeah. And I, I think that looking at deliverables is, is going to be a huge part of that. Apparently the building application backlog has gotten substantially worse over the, the pandemic because a lot of people have decided to take that opportunity of the pandemic to upgrade their home. And so there are substantially more applications in the works than have previously been there. Having a digital application process is going to be good for the city. I I mean, it is a little ridiculous that we are still functioning on effectively the same technology that we were functioning on when the city was founded, but. I, I am unfortunately not super optimistic. Well, other things the city is still struggling to do is figure out how to meet effectively. Council has thankfully agreed some motions on how to continue to meet. They're going to switch to hybrid sittings following motions by Sarah Kirby Young, who was calling for in-person meetings once again to restore democracy. And she celebrated a hybrid meeting compromise as a win, which it does seem like a reasonable option like hopefully they still have their hearings accessible digitally because that idea of showing up in person and standing there all day to be able to yell about the six-story building that's going next to you and you wish it was only four stories is a god-given right in this city yeah yeah god forbid unfortunately this doesn't apply to city committees or advisory panels so the board of variants will be meeting in person starting the next meeting of the Board of Variants, which I think is stupid. This one is really dumb. So the city is claiming that the Vancouver Charter doesn't allow them to hold their advisory committees virtually after the expiration of the emergency orders on September 29th. Yet the province is like, no, you probably could still do it. We're not going to change the Vancouver Charter just like that. And this feels like the park board province debate over drinking in parks once again, where the municipal government is being really timid and the province is like, come on, just, we don't care. Just do it. No one's going to stop you. Just let us meet remotely. It's been working fine. In fact, it's improved some accessibility and I think improved this, like I've, I I was only at one in-person meeting of the board of variants before we went into total lockdown. And so it's, it's like something that I haven't actually experienced in person all that much, but I, like, I think that the board of variance meetings that have been taking place over the course of the pandemic have been pretty productive and, and efficient. And I am interested to see how that's going to change and whether that needs to change for our in-person meetings coming up in October, at least there will be lunch again. And this is having serious impacts, like the Persons of with Disabilities Advisory Committee has lost volunteers already who cannot get to these kind of meetings in person. And so, you know, the accessibility concerns aren't just a matter of convenience. They're a matter of like making these work as best as possible for the people they're designed to facilitate. Yes. So that is an evolving story and we will keep you posted on that as the city does or fails to do anything. 
at all. Speaking of the city, our chief executive has gotten himself into a bit of a tussle at the swirl. This was a weird story earlier in the week from Kennedy Stewart, who it's unclear exactly what happened. His story is that he went to Swirl Wine Store <laughs> on Mainland Street in Yale Town with his wife, Jeanette, and was approached by an angry man and quote, this guy started to harass me verbally and he started to harass my wife and things started to escalate. It's very disturbing. He asked the person to leave. Vancouver police arrived shortly after 5 p.m. He was approached by police and he gave his side of the story, which unfortunately we don't have. Stewart then went on to compare this being yelled at in a wine store to Doug McCallum's story of being run over. Oh, uh, Kennedy, 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 Kennedy. And do not compare uh, yourself to Doug McCallum. It's not a good look. He also compared himself to the chief of police in Victoria. And I'd missed this story, but he had liquid poured on him after participating in a memorial for an indigenous woman and also to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who had gravels thrown at him. Okay, so two, two things. One, our politicians are being persecuted, Matthew. They are being persecuted, and it's absolutely tragic, and we must change. No, first off, Kennedy, you have to be ready to be berated every once in a while, I think. You are the chief executive of Vancouver, and not a great one. <laughs> so, but like public accountability while out in the streets is something that I think you should expect. This was not, from what I can tell, comparable to the others in that there was no physical interaction between the mayor and the person who he was saying was berating him. There, there, I think is a pretty clear, bright line between being pissed off at the mayor and telling him so, throwing gravel at someone, pouring liquid on yeah, them, I think, or running over like, their fucking if, food if, with if a McCall ghost car. If McCallum's was true, that's the worst. Yeah. But we have no, we have his word that it's true. We'll come back to McCallum in a second. But like having liquid poured on you is kind of, to me, in the realm of like pieing Kretchen in the face or, you know, it's funny. You probably shouldn't do it. Yeah. But it doesn't cause a long-term harm. And I, you know, ideally we'd have a society where we don't feel the need to yell at our politicians, but some people are going to express themselves that way. You know, maybe it was bad. Maybe it was much worse than we're imagining, but all we have is his side of the story, which says it was bad. Yeah. And I, I mean, to the guy's credit, he did like wait outside the store for police to show up, which, uh, I mean, if he was particularly belligerent or, or bad, I, I don't think he would have done. I think he would have fled the scene. So, you know, there, there is that it's, it's just a weird story. And I, I am delighted to bring it to you. Well, I mentioned McCallum and McCallum's in the news again, because he is angry. He's angry. Once again, he's angry that the Langley SkyTrain is being delayed, even though a bunch of other people say it's not. Yeah. So for, for clarity, part the Langley SkyTrain had been pitched as the second phase of a two phase SkyTrain development plan with the Fleetwood section being done by 2025. However, with federal money, the entire thing will be done at once finishing in 2028. And so it's like in some ways, yes, it is kind of being all delayed till 2028, but in other ways, it was probably never going to be done by 2025 because 
that's a very fast timeline to build a SkyTrain. And after you blew up the previous transit plans for Surrey, Mayor McCallum, it's going to take time to fix all of that, do all of the prep work and get it going. And then there was a global pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. That was a pickle. Is a pickle. A largest pickle we've ever seen. And because of that briny nonsense, uh, the SkyTrain is going to be delayed. A Surrey City Councilor says, no, it's not being delayed. Doug McCallum is once again playing perhaps uh, a little bit fast and loose with the truth. But it will be fun to ride it. And CBC had a nice clip with Justin McElroy where he gets to say that he is very excited to sit in the front seat, the best seat of the SkyTrain when it is ready. And he'll be the first passenger. We all hope. We, we can only hope. I do like that front seat. It is, it is nice to just coast along on the tracks, being able to see everything that's coming or everything that's behind you. Anyway, that's just me being a child. Things that are fun to ride on are streetcars. Yeah, I am super excited about this. So basically a streetcar report has come back for a 12 kilometer streetcar in downtown Vancouver that would connect everything from the Arbutus Greenway at Broadway and Arbutus, the Sanaqua uh, upcoming developments, all the way around to Chilco Street, all the way at Lost Lagoon, which we will get to in a second. It would loop all the way around Falls Creek up to Waterfront Station or near Waterfront Station, and then all the way down along the seawall out to Denman and Chilco. There would be a second line that would stretch on the lower side of, of downtown on the north side of Falls Creek from Granville Street through Nelson and West Georgia and Pat Glenn Way, joining up with the other line around Science World. And then going out to Thornton Street to connect again to the Millennium Line extension. So this report was commissioned in 2018. I believe it was a Colleen Hardwick motion early in the council that they went, sure, we can study that. Staff started studying it. And the report kind of disappeared and Kenneth Chan over at Daily Hive went, oh, what happened to that? And FOI'd it and got it. And it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is exciting. There are, as some of you will remember from the Olympics, there was a streetcar that ran from Granville Island all the way out to Main Street Science World as a free shuttle. And that was stops at Canby Street and others along the way. Some of those tracks have been covered up, but most of the right-of-way still exists, as do right-of-ways for many stations and, and part portions of the track along medians in like the Olympic Village area and along Pacific, where alignment diagrams have been provided is being part of this report. Yeah, the report pegs the total cost of this network at a billion dollars. Fascinatingly, it suggests it could be as popular or more popular than the 99B line, which is the busiest bus in the province, as far as I know. Yeah. One thing that I found particularly interesting was that most of the trips that are on the streetcar line are projected to be quite short, as in less than 800 meters, and are designed to be feeder routes towards the bigger SkyTrain lines. They would interact with the Arbutus station the Olympic Village Station and with Main Street Science World. And so everyone who is living along South Falls Creek, if those lands ever get redeveloped and, you know, God willing, they will, that that density could be served by this streetcar to connect them to the more robust transit lines, the heavy rail transit lines that make up our SkyTrain system. 
Now, I didn't look too closely at this, at whether that would, and I suspect it would be largely displacing pedestrian and cycling trips rather than other bus trips or car trips. So, you know, is this a net benefit for transit usage? It's kind of a tough call to make. And that's kind of, where's the business case for this? Like, it's something I think is cool and would get used. And maybe that's just enough of the case for it. Like, if people are taking trips along Coal Harbor, around Yale Town, and even just using it as a tourist transit way, mm-hmm. maybe that's the justification for it. Like, people, critics kind of try to say, you know, a bus can serve this just as well. And like the 50 exists to do some of these routes, but the buses get stuck in traffic. There are right of ways on many sections of this. It would require a bit of work to separate some of it. Other parts, these streetcars would get stuck in traffic. Yeah. And, and I think that's fine. That's the sort of part of the streetcar problem. It, it's never going to be a heavy rail system like the SkyTrain. However, it will make it less of a gigantic pain in the ass to get out to the far west end, which is delightful. I, I think that it is way too difficult to, on, to get on transit out to the west end. And this would, I think, be better than a bus. Let's get a whole bunch of people out to Stanley Park to chase away those coyotes. To bring it full circle. Yes. In fact, there is something in Stanley Park that has occurred that we might want to, to mention. It's all the Lost Lagoon, an invasive species that was probably generated by people dumping their goldfish into Lost Lagoon. Those carp have all died. Uh, so a mass death of fish, by some accounts in the thousands, have been discovered in Lost Lagoon over the last few days. And so Stanley Park Ecology Society is going to be looking into that. They don't know exactly why, but Olga Landsdorp told CTV News that, quotes, as far as I know, it is the common carp that is affected by this death. My first impressions is that they look like dull fish. Looks like they do not have really that much fight left in them. So we can't blame the coyotes for this, right? Yes. Uh, It might be the hot summer, it might be waste decomposing at the bottom of ponds that led to a drop in oxygen content. So it, it's unclear exactly why this happened, but as far as I'm concerned, it is just another sign of the impending apocalypse. <laughs> Finally, running for council in Coquitlam is about to get harder. It's going to get five times more difficult here. And, you know, this might just dash my hopes of ever running for Coquitlam City Council, not that I had any. The council is currently looking at a proposal to increase the barrier to put your name forward. I think we've talked about this a few times for the city of Vancouver, particularly after the last nightmare election where everyone and their dog ran for council or mayor and we had the world's record ballot. That was the special tie. Vancouver, what did we go from like 50 to 100 signatures needed? Yeah. Something like that. It was not a substantial increase to my opinion. So I mentioned council in Coquitlam is looking at a five times increase. That five times will land them at 10 signatures, meaning you currently need two friends to run for council. And now we are going to discriminate against those who don't have friends and family in the city. Well, that must be devastating news for all the politically minded shut-ins in Coquitlam. But, you know, democracy is a cruel beast. There's no intention to look at increasing the financial threshold. Similar to Vancouver, they would view that as a 
barrier for those with less assets, resources, finances. And so they're still focused solely on the signatures, but they think 10 signatures will be enough to dissuade the non-serious candidates from running. Good luck. One, one part of the article actually said it, I didn't look it up, but one part of the article claimed it was in the community charter or the local government act that, that you could only have five or 10 or, or two or two, two, five or 10 signature limits requirements outside of Vancouver. And that I find hard to believe. I'll need to verify that. Because if you can run for council in Surrey with 10 signatures, that'll be something. Yeah, that's pretty bonkers, in my opinion. Also bonkers. And we we end every uh, episode of the Canby Report with Vancouverada, a, a little tidbit of history from Vancouver's past. Uh, I'd like to shout out my friend Helene Boyd, who gave me this wonderful book for my birthday, Vancouver Exposed by Eve Lazarus, Searching for the City's Hidden History, it, which is just chock-a-block full of marvelous little tidbits about Vancouver's past. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from this book as we do more Vancouveradas in the future. But one that piqued my interest was when we drove on the left side of the road. So at 6 a.m. on Sunday, January 1st, 1922, Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island finally switched from the left side of the road to driving on the right side of the road and were effectively one of the last areas in Canada to change over. The rest of the province had been switched on July 15th, 1920, but the BC Electric Railway had needed more time to switch over the streetcars into urbans and tracks. There was a whole movement with ads in the province and sun, and the world newspaper ran a competition to help citizens keep becoming roadkill, which I mean, that's going to happen with, if you're in the road one way or the other there folks, while there was widespread prediction that confusion and chaos would, would take place on the switch day, that, that again, being January 1st, 1922, it was actually fine. Apparently, uh, the only problems were a few drunk people who were apparently reveling from New Year's Eve festivities the night before, taking the wrong streetcar and ending up somewhere far, far away from their intended destination because they headed in the opposite direction. That'll happen. But we've all been there. Let's be honest. Yes. Yes, we have. <laughs> like I could, I could see the pedestrian risk because you're used to walking out the street and looking right first and then left. And you're, you know, look, you're looking for cars coming from the opposite direction and they come at you. I'm Wait, glad no, to hear. Le left and right. Then left. That's what you look at now, right? Yeah. When you walk out to the right, street. Yes. But if you had been looking right, then left, then right. Street safety. Yeah. I actually, I, I, I retract my previous comments. I, I actually think that that is a pretty salient criticism because when I moved to Australia for a couple of years during my first couple weeks in Australia and I got, I got bashed out of this very quickly. I would very confidently walk with a plum into the middle of the street, looking the wrong direction and putting myself directly in the path of traffic. So I am glad that apparently the only people inconvenienced by this whole frufera were the revelers who, well, could have gotten on the wrong bus. I'm still trying to picture how it worked in that period where the rest of British Columbia had switched over, but Vancouver hadn't. So you start driving Highway 1 or Highway 3, whatever was open at the time. Maybe there just weren't the highways yet. Maybe that was the answer. You couldn't drive across the mountains. I don't remember when the highways were built. 
those might have been later yeah it, was there a point when you just had to like crisscross the road the answer is almost certainly yes I've been at one of those crossing points where you have to just sort of shift over to the other side of the road. Uh, when I was crossing from Thailand into Cambodia, Thailand drives on the left, Cambodia drives on the right, and it is a mess. It's a total fucking mess. You drive up on the left side, and then there's this like period where everyone is just on the road, your tour buses, your cars, your pedestrians, and they're just shifting to the right possible thing. The Thai border is more kind of built up on the Thai side, uh, rather than the Cambodian side. And so all the switching happens on the Cambodian side and it is a disaster. <laughs> Jeez. Much like our council, which never knows whether it's left or right. <laughs> this is the Canby report. Yes. For the September 24th edition of the Canby report, I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good afternoon.